0: Two and a half admins, episode 139. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. Let's do some feedback then. Ray says, I greatly enjoy hearing the three of you poke fun at flawed newer technologies like blockchain, IoT, and AI, but I wonder if there's any new or up and coming tech that you're excited about. To be clear, your skepticism of all hype is what keeps me listening every week, but I'd love to hear about anything new you're following that you feel could have a positive impact on our industry or tech in general.
1: I think a lot of the stuff that's really interesting is more incremental. It sounds like Hammer is finally here for hard drives and we're going to start seeing 30 terabyte drives this year and 50 terabyte drives within the next two years. And that's kind of crazy. And dual actuator drives are actually here now. And NVMe over Fabric and actually seeing, you know, a file server type thing where there's like this whole chassis full of flash and we're going to connect it really quickly to this machine and be able to do tens of gigabytes a second. That's all really interesting to me. And looking at how we're going to have to just change the way operating systems and file systems and and storage in general works to deal with the fact that we never assumed hard drives would be able to do tens of gigabytes per second all the time with latencies in a thousand or 10,000 times less than was ever possible before.
2: I'm excited about RISC-V. I would like to be more excited about the pivot towards ARM computing that we've been seeing. But so far, the pivot to ARM seems to come with using it as an excuse to further lock down hardware and make it more difficult to innovate and more difficult to configure your own things and force you to just use the entire thing as a sealed box and throw it away when you're done. And I absolutely hate that. So it's very hard for me to get too excited about ARM. Risk five, on the other hand, due to the difference in the licensing model, you can build a lockdown device with Risk v but...
1: There's less point.
2: Yeah, the, the ease of getting into Risk v development seems to kind of be pushing off the people who otherwise are big into this idea of pivot to ARM and wrap everything in the sealed box and, and what have you. How easy it is to get into the chipset and add features, change things the way that you need them to be build your own reference board. It's so much easier to do all that, and there's so much less overhead to get into the game. Whereas even with ARM, it's really expensive to build a true custom ARM system from the ground up. Something like, you know, what an Apple might do. There's a lot of licensing hassle and, uh, you know, paywall up front that you've got to clear to really get into that ball game that you just don't have with Risk 5.
1: Yeah, like if you look at the Raspberry Pi, they had to go with an existing Broadcom design and so on because doing their own would have required so much licensing cost.
2: Yeah, so I'm very excited about that possibility with Risk 5 of of going back to open hardware and, you know, much the way that we had the renaissance for open software when Linux and FreeBSD exploded onto the stage in the 90s. I'm really hoping that RISC-V will do something similar for open computing hardware on the low and the higher end in the years coming forward. We're not there yet, at least in terms of general purpose computing, but we're already seeing an explosion of RISC-V into like firmware controllers for exactly the reasons I've been talking about. So I think that's going to continue. And this may be one of those predictions that you know everybody just gets to laugh at me 10 years from now. But yeah, I'm excited about a potential renaissance there.
1: Yeah, and that kind of reminds me, talking about the idea that we see companies, like even hard drive manufacturers, looking at using RISC-V for the microcontroller part of the hard drive. And it reminds me that we're also getting to the point where we see Flash directly connected to the computer, and instead of having a bunch of spooky black box firmware, that whole layer moves into open source software, where the file system is talking directly to the flash and deciding how to lay things out. And all of a sudden, all that creepy problems we have in the firmware, like have you seen the problems we've been seeing with Samsung firmware on, on the 990s and so on? What if all of that was software on the computer that we could just fix and didn't involve having to change the firmware out on this hardware and you could only get the firmware from Samsung and nobody else? Having more of those middle bits be software that, we can fix and that can maybe be open source.
2: Yeah, I, I was really disappointed when I was at ours that I couldn't get anybody to send me a host managed SMR drive to test because that that ticks a lot of those same boxes. A lot of our listeners are only going to know SMR is a curse word. You know, those are the crappy drives that you don't want, but that's actually kind of reductive. That That is pretty true of rotational hard drives, but technically all solid state drives are, are drive managed SMR. Host-managed SMR, rather than managing things in the firmware inside the drive itself as a sealed unit, works exactly like Alan is talking about. Those functions that are handled by the chipset in consumer and even enterprise firmware and SSDs and hard drives, if you're doing a host-managed SMR, that moves into demons that run on the actual machine in software on your CPU.
1: Yeah, like in a, a host-managed SMR hard drive or disk, You can only append to a sector and like if you want to rewrite the whole thing, it's like the whole like 256 megabytes at a time. Kind of like if you try to write less than 512 bytes to a hard drive now, it tells you that's invalid. And uh, a host managed SMR will do the same thing saying, no, you have to write this whole flash cell. So it's up to you to pick up the old data, figure out which parts aren't used right now, coalesce that all and write it back. I'm somewhat interested in ARM, especially I've seen some of the, the ARM server hardware that's like x86 replacement style and has PCIe slots, maybe more PCIe lanes than you can get even from an AMD box and lets you plug in lots and lots of NVMe and video cards and, and lots of RAM and has, you know, had DDR5 before you could get it in any x86 machines. And that was interesting. But the other part that was really interesting to me there was the BIOS firmware being open source based on uh, Intel's EDK2 framework. And, hey, look, it runs Open BMC, not some spooky black box firmware. So that management controller chip that can root your whole machine is now running open source software that I can download, manage, recompile, and, and put my own version on it. And now I can control my whole fleet of machines and the BIOS is open source, the firmware controller is open source, the BMC is open source, and the operating system is open source. And suddenly, there's no back boxes left in my hardware stack. And this,
0: I find really, really exciting. So for me, it's decentralization and the Fediverse that I find really exciting. And it's kind of not new tech, but it's really blown up because of the Musk Twitter thing. That's It's really kind of pushed it to the forefront of a lot of techie people's minds. And... I think it's really matured over the last few months and really hit critical mass. And I know we talked about this a couple of episodes ago and you two are still not 100% sold on it by any means, but I'm kind of really sold on Mastodon and just this idea of decentralization because we had things like, I think, Gab and Truth Social come along that showed that you can just block whole instances and just silo them off, just let them go off and do their own thing. You don't have to let them connect to you. And things are really shaking out nicely with it. And the people who are really pushing it forward tend to be quite anti-crypto as well, which is good because there's always that danger of you start talking about decentralization and the crypto people kind of want to get involved. So it feels like we're really moving in a great direction there where we can potentially leave behind all the people who are using Twitter and Facebook or whatever, and just have our own cool little, almost like splinternet, for want of a better word. This reminds me
1: of this story we covered on my other podcast, which was about running your own instant messaging service using XMPP. And it's like, yes, now I remember when we kind of decided that having these walled gardens like AOL Instant Messenger and ICQ and MSN Messenger and Yahoo Messenger was bad. And we would build this decentralized, federated messaging thing on XMPP. And I had one client and I could be on Google's, it wasn't called Hangouts yet, but whatever Google's chat thing was. It was Google Talk in the
2: XMPP days.
1: Yes, Google Talk, the Yahoo Messenger, the chat system for the MMO I played, and all these other things from one client. It all just worked nicely and it was federated. And then it all went to hell. I know it was Google Talk because it still
2: says XMPP, open parenthesis, Google Talk, close parenthesis, in Pigeon when you go to set up a new account. Yeah. And I've got <laughs> one client that runs their own internal Pigeon instance, and so I see that every time I set up a new user for them. That's the only reason I actually remember that bit of trivia. <laughs> I got actually a little bit more excited about Mastodon recently. The strongest argument I've seen for Mastodon so far has been pitched as a failure story, but I see it as a massive success. The admin of one of the larger instances, Mastodon.lol, kind of went off the rails, started telling people to commit suicide, told everybody to F off and he was going to kill the instance. And this has created a lot of turmoil because everybody's migrating their accounts off this instance that is about to go away permanently. And, you know, people are like, oh, is this, you know, does this show why Mastodon will never work and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? I don't care what platform you use, admins will go off the rails. It's going to happen. It's not going to be infrequent. I mean, look at Twitter. Look (laughs) at the guy that took it over. Look what's happening there. Now, if Twitter worked like Mastodon did. I'd just be like, well, fuck Elon Musk Twitter. I'm going to get the hell off of here. I'm going to migrate over to this other instance and take all my followers with me and all the people I'm following with me and everything will just be fine. I'm just on a new, different instance, which is exactly what people are doing, you know, in the wake of the Mastodon.lol meltdown. And don't get me wrong, it is a hassle. I'm not super expert on the ways that it's a hassle, but I've been told that repeatedly. But at the end of the hassle you can still talk to all the same people. You didn't have to drag everybody you know off with you to a whole new platform. You could just move your crap off of the server that turned out to be a problem, and life is good again. That's what we can't do on Twitter, on Facebook, on Tumblr even, you know, whatever. So that supposed failure story and fiasco,
1: that is the biggest thing that's gotten me excited about Mastodon. Now, if only it didn't involve having to change my username to do that. And I think my biggest worry with Mastodon is the more I look at it, the more it seems like the only way this is going to work for me is if I run my own one-person instance. And
0: I don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't want all the compliance issues that come along with that and the potential legal problems.
2: It's not a compliance issue if it's a one-person instance.
0: Yeah, if there, there are fewer problems if the instance is me and me only. Yes and no. I definitely have no interest in doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a technical interest in doing it, but in terms of actually taking responsibility for everything that is going to go on on that server.
1: Well, the only thing that's going to go on that server
0: is me. Not if people reply to you with shit that you do not want to see and take responsibility for.
2: I mean, that's not any different than if I email you something illegal. It still winds up on your computer. True. Even if you didn't run the email server. By the time you see that there's something wrong in that email, you see it because it's on Mm. your computer. So either your legal framework is willing to recognize the distinction between some get emailed me this horrible illegal thing that I don't want and I went and found this and saved it and I'm collecting it and curating it because I'm into it. Well, either your legal framework recognizes that or it doesn't. And if it doesn't recognize that, you already have all those problems.
0: Maybe I should spin my on instance up then. Yeah, but that's like a lot of work. (laughs) I want to do that. (laughs) Well, yeah. And the thing is that at this point, there's a lot of folks out there who've got a lot of experience. I'm on Fostodon, and I really trust the admins there. And uh, looking at the finances, that's looking quite healthy as well. And uh, it's a great time over there. So yeah, Jim, just get on Fostodon. Come on.
2: That's another thing I have to keep up with. That's always been the problem. The problem is not Mastodon. The problem is my limited bandwidth.
0: Yeah. Just abandon Twitter. Come on. I know you got a lot of followers and a fancy blue tick and everything, but just... Cut your losses. I'm not done
2: yelling at chuds, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, the reply I gave to
1: to somebody else who asked about it on, on Twitter the other day. It's like, I made the point about Mastodon being a bit like GPG, and kind of a little bit too much, like you need to know how to do it and have your own tools and so on, and it's just rough edges. But it's also that most of the people that are moved over are the people I can engage with elsewhere anyway, whereas Twitter is the only place where I actually have the chance to engage with the normies or even like a bunch of people I follow in like the financial space, like how credit cards actually work and some of the internals of banking and so on. That stuff's not happening on Mastodon.
0: Yeah. And a lot of the Ukraine stuff I've heard is is over there, like following the actual day-to-day what's going on with that situation. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of defense analysis happening on Mastodon yet. Not yet, but there will be. I'm telling
1: you. Well, I don't know if it's going to be Mastodon or something else, but I think that Jim has a big point there. It's like if, if Mastodon can figure out portability better, where I could more easily move from this instance to that instance and have it not break everything. Like I can keep all my followers, but what about the people that are following me? How do I make it so that every time I have to move, I don't have to get everybody that follows me to update somehow?
0: No, that's already solved problem man.
1: That is solved. Okay, so then how can I use that to steal all your followers without you knowing? trick everybody
0: that's following you into following me instead and unfollowing you. Well, you could just manipulate them with your dulcet tones, but uh, trust me, this is a mature platform at this point. It's had a lot of time with not that many users, but just with very technical users. Then it had a massive influx of users. They solved a bunch more problems, and now it's in a really mature state.
2: I don't think this is as much of a solved problem as you're saying, Joe. You say that he can just win them over with his dulcet tones, but it's kind of hard to open a toot. (sighs) Hi. (laughs) I'm out. It just doesn't come across the same way.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to lino.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit, and support the show. That's lino.com slash 25A. Gabin writes, I would love to hear arguments from Alan trying to defend BSD licensing to Jim, and how he sees it not being detrimental to FreeBSD. I have this example, and then he links to uh, what is the status of gaming on FreeBSD on Reddit. For instance, Wi-Fi has been solved on macOS and Sony PlayStation since 2007, and JunoS, but never given back to Upstream. Yes, you can brag about throwing 800 gigabits per second of TLS stuff at one server, but who cares? I use both systems, but I'm tired of the hypocrisy of the most vocal FreeBSD users, arguing that FreeBSD is a server OS only and nothing else, as an excuse to not fix its weaknesses.
2: Okay, before we turn this over to Alan, I want to get one thing clear from the start. Alan doesn't need to defend FreeBSD licensing to me. My position is has always been, and I'm quite vocal about it, there is a place in the world for both permissive licenses and strong GPL-style licenses. We need both. Neither one is good enough on its own.
1: With that said, Alan, take it away. Well, I think all of the complaints here have nothing to do with licensing. Doing GPL wouldn't solve any of these problems either. (laughs) Like in general, looking at the, the Mac OS and PlayStation points, it's like, well, Mac OS has the advantage of they pick one specific Wi-Fi card and support it for an entire generation of hardware. And FreeBSD tries to run on everything. And even if Apple gave back the source code for that one driver, that wouldn't make your laptop work any better unless it was a Mac. And the PlayStation again, that's very special hardware. And the fact that they use some FreeBSD and it doesn't really, the drivers they have wouldn't be useful. Like the, the graphics drivers in a PlayStation are not like the graphics drivers in a PC. They run at a lower level and it's is, is quite a bit different and they wouldn't help FreeBSD even if they did give them back. And really like the solution to the Wi-Fi that we do have is because of BSD licensing. Intel dual licenses, their. Intel Wi-Fi drivers as GPL and BSD and that means those Wi-Fi cards work to a degree on FreeBSD. The bigger problem is that Linux would have the same problem with the GPL licenses. Somebody has to actually pay for the work to get the infrastructure working for generic Wi-Fi, not one specific use case that's very different. Like macOS isn't FreeBSD, right? It borrows some components from FreeBSD but the, the kernel and stuff is completely its own thing And so their drivers wouldn't be any use to us. And the PlayStation, it's like there's FreeBSD as a base, but all of the Sony stuff is is bolt-on on on top and works very differently. And so even if they had it, it wouldn't help. And most of the problems you're talking about, the state of gaming and Wi-Fi and desktop on FreeBSD, have nothing to do with the licensing and everything to do with the critical mass of users. IBM spent billions of dollars to get Linux to be competitive, and nobody spent billions of dollars to do that to FreeBSD.
2: I think the implication that Gavin is trying to make here is that permissive licensing tends to encourage a code hoarding mindset where you just like, I grabbed all the permissive license code and I can do all I want. I don't have to contribute anything upstream. And copyleft arguably encourages a more community minded approach because you know that if you're going to distribute your work, then your work has to be publicly available, it tends to encourage you to think more along the lines of doing everything in a more community forward fashion to begin with. And I think that's valid. However, I don't think that just solves issues like Wi-Fi or graphics drivers or what have you. That really comes down to to market share and FreeBSD just does not have the market share that Linux does. I do think that corporate contributions specifically... The GPL encourages those in a way that permissive licensing does not, because if you're an HP enterprise, you know that any contributions that you make to the kernel overall, nobody else is just going to consume those and then wrap it up into their own thing that then they ship out in a proprietary way that you don't get access to. They know that, well, if I contribute to the kernel, everybody gets to use my contributions. But everybody using my contributions, if they do something fun, I get that as well. So it's better for all of us we are all doing the updates. Now, all that absolutely can happen on the permissive licensing side as well, and it does. Like I said, I do think it's valid to point out that there seems to be more of a code hoarding mindset on the permissive license side.
0: I don't know. I
1: think there's more GPL violators than there are people hoarding BSD code. Well, you'll never really know, will you? Yes, you won't know either way. But we've definitely seen lots of cases of the GPL not necessarily solving this problem. But yeah, like you said, we have no way of knowing how many people are are hoarding BSD code. But a lot of the vendors that do do stuff with FreeBSD, you do see giving stuff back because community, but also because it's in their best interest. Anything that's not their proprietary thing, they want to give it back because it means next time they update to a newer version of BSD, it's already synced up for them and they don't have to uplift their 10,000 patches to the next version of FreeBSD because they upstreamed as much of that as they could. They can keep parts that are their IP or whatever, but there's an incentive to them even if it's not for the community to give stuff back. And I've not heard from a lot of people that their concern is if they upstream something that somebody's going to go build something else with it and they're not going to benefit from that. I might argue that you're not hearing that because the people that think that aren't using BSD
2: in the first place, so you're not talking to them.
1: It could be that. And, and it's not an invalid concern, but I see it a slightly different way of like, if my washing machine is going to have a TCP IP stack in it in order to send a notification to my phone when my washing is done, I'd prefer that there was a liberally licensed BSD one that they could take and use and not have mm-hmm. any other requirements on than them being like, Oh, the GPL one means we'd have to audit and make sure we didn't mix it with our other code in a way that would violate the GPL. And so we're going to go build our own little TCP stack that'll work well enough to send a notification to your phone, but it's going to break your whole network or something.
2: Yeah, TCP IP, I think, is actually a a great example of why the world absolutely needs permissive licensing, not just copyleft. It's one that I use pretty frequently when when I talk about licenses, because arguably the BSD license is the reason that we all have an internet where all the computers can talk to each other and do so in the same way and know what each other are saying and everything's nice and cross compatible because what actually happened back in the dawn of time before TCP IP was the accepted standard for network protocols, there were tons of them. There was, you know, Novell's IPX, uh, Microsoft had NetBui on down the line and they were proprietary. Then the BSD folks, the the prototypical BSD folks, they took a look at a TCP IP stack and they wrote their own version and licensed it permissively. And now all of a sudden there was a world-class, very high-quality, high-performance TCP IP stack that anybody could just grab and bolt on to their own stack of stuff and not have to worry about license contamination issues. So that's exactly what happened. Rather than everybody building their own protocol or even building their own implementation that might or might not really be compatible... Now you've suddenly got everybody from Microsoft to you name it, grabbing this freely available BSD TCP IP stack, yoinking it and adding it to their stuff, and all the computers can talk to each other. And that might seem normal and expected now, but I promise you it was not just
1: normal and expected and how the world worked back in the 90s. Yeah, and part of this question hit me a funny way where it seemed to me a bit to be the thing we sometimes see in open source where users just demanding that developers who are doing this in their spare time should fix the problem they care about instead of the problem the developer cares about? This seems
2: to me to be an example of the kind of thing where open source users say, wouldn't open source be better if everything only worked the way that I like things to work? (laughs) Which is not the strength of open source. Diversity is a feature, it's not a bug. We want different kernels, We want different licenses. We want different stacks. We want them all to be able to interoperate, but we want different implementations and different ideas and different thoughts. And not all of them will work. Not all of them will make the cut. Some of them will end up getting left on the floor because they didn't do what we wanted them to do. But whether you're talking about an operating system or a license or a network stack or a desktop environment, having more options is better,
1: period. Yeah, and I'll just say that their comment here that, oh, who cares about throwing 800 gigabits of TLS encrypted traffic out of one server? It's like probably in the end, more people than care about playing video games on an alternative OS. You know, everybody who watches streaming video cares about the fact that that can be done economically with open source software instead of not. Whereas being able to play your game on your weird OS, that applies to some people, but you have to look at it not just does this open source thing do exactly what I want in the way I want it versus this is a toolkit for building things and it does a lot of amazing things and just because it doesn't do good Wi-Fi on my laptop so I can play old games doesn't mean it's not useful. FreeBSD has many problems and a bunch of this is, is what you're saying, but I don't think we can blame much of any of that on the license.
0: Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Riley says, my OpenWRT router is my main gateway router on my network right now, and I want to configure Lucy with HTTPS, but without a self-signed certificate. My question is, would it be possible to sign up and get a Let's Encrypt certificate easily and possibly anonymously without having to enter in personally identifiable information and then set up Acme on my OpenWRT router and then have it automatically renew sometime around the expiration date? I want this to be easy and efficient for me to use and maybe schedule a cron job with. While I can always access Lucy with regular HTTP, I'm also worried about my browser not being able to access it that way anymore and I would rather not do a self-signed certificate, because that means I have to copy-paste the certificate everywhere on every device. I'm also one of those weird people that would still prefer to configure my router purely in CLI, using UCI or editing their Etsy config files on OpenWRT, but if I ever need third-party support from my ISP, for example, they'll probably expect to go to a web page at my gateway IP and get an admin login page, so it's probably best to keep up Lucy. I would say your ISP is probably not going to support your OpenWRT.
2: Yeah, either way, uh, the ISP is never going to see that, touch that, care about that. They may ask you to log in to your router, but I mean, they're not watching you.
1: (laughs) And it shouldn't be exposed such that they can reach it anyway.
2: Correct. So going back to the original question, which is just, it boils down to, can I use Let's Encrypt to get a certificate for Lucy, which is the graphical interface on my OpenWrt router, You can, but the caveat there is going to be that you either need a static IP address or you need dynamic DNS that will update itself to point to whatever your current IP is. And you're going to have to expose a web server on your public IP address in order for Let's Encrypt to reach out to it to verify that
1: you really are the one who should be able to update that certificate for that domain. You can do DNS authentication instead, so you don't have to expose it to the internet. True. I do that with using uh, my domain supplier, the place I buy my domains from. They offer DNS hosting that includes an API for my Acme client to create the records temporarily to prove to Let's Encrypt that I control the domain. So it's like Acme.sh running on the OpenWrt could do that. But Jim's point is you're going to need a domain name that points to your Router because the the name that's going to be on the certificate has to match what URL which URL you type into your browser to open it to not get the certificate warning and that'll be a little special. Yeah, one way or another, that may just be a little bit more than
2: you really want to bite off and chew. I wish I had a cleaner, better answer to this. In that situation, personally, I tend to just not worry so much about the uh, the snake oil cert. Just generate a snake oil cert. I don't actually bother copying it to other devices. I just. I'm expecting a snake oil cert when I go to a router is kind of what it boils down to. That is unfortunate in that the argument there is it trains you to just be okay with getting warnings in your browser and proceeding through them anyway. And that is valid. That's an issue. I would prefer not to have to deal with that. But when the alternative is going through all the hassle necessary to update a Let's Encrypt cert from a residence, (laughs) yeah, I, I just live with the snake oil cert.
1: Yeah. And I've also seen problems where we tried to actually use real SSL certs for the BMC interface on a machine. And then if the cert was expired or invalid, the BMC wouldn't boot properly and then we couldn't fix it. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't access the machine at all once the certificate expired, which led to all kinds of fun about resetting it and going back to, yeah, we'll just have to deal with the fact that the browser purposely makes it require three clicks in order to to say, yes, I definitely do mean to connect to this website. I know that I'm not verifying the identity. So now that we've covered all the individual
2: pieces, uh, Riley, our answer to you is actually, don't worry about the certificates one way or the other. Disable Lucy. You don't want to use it anyway. Your ISP will neither know nor care whether you've got Lucy available or not. So just don't do HTTP to your open word
0: at all. Manage it from a command line like you really want to. Problem solved. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me at rest.com slash mastodon. I'm still on Twitter for the moment at JRSSnet. And at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.